Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. As we sang, all creatures of our God and King, uh, my mind was already moving to Philippians chapter 2. Um, as we read uh, in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we sing that song, all creatures of our God and King, and we are calling on all of creation to recognize the sovereignty of God and the person of Christ. And my mind was racing. It really has been a privilege to share in Philippians to this point with you. Um, uh, perhaps it's been a little slow, but uh, for me it's been uh, very important even studying and preparing. I want to begin our time, which will mostly be spent in verses 12 and 13, by as quickly as possible uh, covering a couple of pre-passage points of review. First, um, the idea of unity and the gospel. Um, in chapter 1, verse 27, we read, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then the very next paragraph in chapter 2, verse 1, it's a call to unity. If there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It's a call to unity and I guess my first pre-passage point this morning would be um, that unity and the gospel are cooperative with one another. Um, I believe the text in many places, and certainly here in Philippians, makes it clear. Unity in the body of Christ is a gospel issue. When we say it's a gospel issue, what I mean by that is that it's an issue that uh, is essential to the prosperity of the gospel in a people. If we're trying to be gospel people and evangelistic and lead people to Jesus, and there is not a God-given unity in the body of Christ, that will be a hindrance. Paul, I believe, is connecting unity in the first paragraph of chapter 2 to his call in verse 27 of chapter 1 when he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we know his mind is on evangelism in the gospel from chapter 1, where he tells them, hey, look, you can rejoice, even the palace guard, all who are in Rome, all who are around me, the, the gospel is being proclaimed. Remember, he says some people are proclaiming it out of envy and strife. Some people are proclaiming the gospel out of love. And then he says, but what do I care? What is that to me? only that the gospel is being proclaimed. And when he says in verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, of course, that can mean a lot of things. A life worthy of the gospel can mean a lot of things. But in chapter 2, we find it certainly doesn't mean less than unity in the body of Christ. This is not a new idea. Jesus, in John 13, also connects our ability to reach people with the gospel of Christ to the unity that we have with each other. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples 
in chapter 13 of John's gospel. This is verse 34 and 35. It'll be familiar. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. People on the outside looking in will know that you are distinctly Christian. You are distinctly disciples of Christ by your love one for another. So it's not a new thing for Paul to connect unity to the effectiveness of evangelism and ministry. The Son of God visited the earth, and if you think about it, um, Jesus could have taught about anything. Right? I mean, how many things must Jesus have known that are still foreign to you and I today? About the creation of the world, the history of the world. What about all the details of heaven that certainly the Lord could have devoted message after message over to His people? When you stop and you consider that God in the flesh came and spoke to people, Think of all of the messages that he could have delivered. And yet chief among his teaching to his disciples is that those who believe in him must love one another. That they must love their enemies. That they must forgive their brothers who sin against them. It's Matthew 18, Matthew 5. Paul summarizes in Ephesians 4, verses 31 32, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Disharmony and bitterness and an unforgiving spirit, unreconciled relationships among God's people harms the work of the gospel. Why would Jesus spend his time teaching about this? Of all the things he could have taught about, because this is the character of God. That's the justification we're given in the text. Why would God come and live among people and, and, and give this message? It's all this relational kind of instruction. To, why? Because, again, the coming of God is the revelation of God, and this is God. God forgives his enemies. Um, and I, I could say with the Apostle Paul, I am chief among them. There is no sinner greater than me. God forgives his enemies. God loves his enemies. In this, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, rebels against God, Christ died for us. Why does Jesus give all of this instruction? It's not just, hey, get along with each other because I want you to live long, happy lives in community. with." That's not what this is. Jesus is not simply interested in building a happy, you know, connected community with people. He is telling us what the character of God demands for godliness. If you would be like God, then you must be loving and forgiving. 
as Paul says, even as God in Christ forgave you. God requires his people to live in unity, in community with one another. It's not an option. Neither is it an option to say, well, it's, it's too hard to forgive. It's too hard to be reconciled. So I'll just leave. God hasn't abandoned you on the tenth time that you've sinned against him. It's too hard. I just don't get along with that person. So I'll just sit over here and they can just sit over there. Praise God, he doesn't put that distance between you and him. When you fail, when you're stubborn, when you're slow to repent, when you're immature. These instructions are not mere wishy-washy, let's all get along together instructions. This is about understanding the character of God and being like him. Which is why when, when Jesus confronts his disciples about the requirement of forgiving. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. We might read Peter's question. You know, Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times seven? And we might hear that and say, well, you know, that's, I can do math. <laughs> that's 49 times. That's not that big of a number, right? And yet, if you are a person who has been in a relationship with another person, and that other person has sinned against you 50 times, that's a lot in an individual relationship. 50 betrayals, 50 sins, 50 lies. That's a lot in a relationship. So Peter thinks he's giving a, a pretty big number in and of itself. And the Lord says to him, what? I mean, no, I say seven times 70. If you think 50 is a big number, 490 times. I mean, <laughs> I hope Allison cannot remember 490 offenses that I've committed against her. I'm sure I'm there. Don't get me wrong. I've been married a long time. But I hope she, she, can't, she can't count that many off the tip of her tongue. You know, I, that's, it seems like an, it's an unfathomable number. How could you possibly even remember 500 times someone sinned against you? And, and then he tells the story of the king who forgives a servant of an immeasurable debt and the same servant who refuses to forgive a fellow servant of a relatively meager debt. And he says the king finds out that the servant whom he's forgiven refuses to forgive his fellow servant. And so he goes back to the guy whom he'd forgiven and he throws him in jail and he takes everything away from him and he basically condemns him. And the warning is, this is, <laughs> this is the seriousness in God's eyes towards someone who says, I'm a servant of the great high king who's forgiven me all of my sin, and yet I won't be reconciled. I won't, I won't forgive my brother. So unity in the body of Christ is certainly about more than forgiving and relationship mending and tending to relationships that we might otherwise just simply distance ourselves from. Unity in the body of Christ is about more than that, but it's not about less than that. There is something that glorifies God in sinful people living in unity with each other even as they sin against each other. Because that is how God is dwelling with you and I. God is dwelling with me even as I sin against Him. And the forgiveness is a never-ceasing fountain from the cross. 
It's just a steady stream of grace and forgiveness. Now, I, I know this is very hard. It's very hard to forgive. It's very hard to have unity. In the flesh, it's very difficult. But this is what Paul is commanding the Philippians to do. Specifically, in chapter 4, he'll address two people who need to mend the relationship by name, which I mentioned when I read it a few weeks ago would be an awkward way to have your conflict come to the surface in front of everyone. The Apostle Paul writes about it to be read forever and ever. But that's the seriousness. He, Paul, we know how serious Paul is about the gospel. He's telling him, I think you, you all are serious about the gospel too. But this issue is not separable from the gospel if you want to be effective. Second pretext point is the mind of Christ, which we spent our time in the last couple of weeks. Let me just read it to you as a review in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we get to this great statement of faith? How do we get to this great doctrinal poetic statement of who Jesus is? From verse 4. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others, just like Jesus did. In God, Christ lives a life on this earth, 32 years, 33 years, to meet the deepest needs of others. And the deepest needs of others are always spiritual. Always. Worldly needs are not to be ignored. The Bible is very clear. We're not to ignore the practical, the physical needs of those around us. But to neglect the spiritual needs of people is to fail entirely at loving them. To simply meet worldly needs and to neglect the spiritual is to miss the deepest need. Here is Paul making this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to this now. This is verse 14. For the love, now remember I said to neglect the deepest needs is to fail at loving them. Listen to what he says about love here. For the love of Christ compels us. Because the love of Jesus is in my heart, he says, this is 2 Corinthians 5.14, we are compelled because we judge thus that if one died for all, he's talking about Jesus, 
Then all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, the love of Christ compels us to see the death and resurrection of Jesus as the only way of life towards everyone else who's condemned to die a worldly death. And that people on this earth should not live for themselves, but should live for the one who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ compels us to say these things. Now, this is in the midst of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he's trying to make the point that he's not crazy to the church in Corinth, because that's what he's been accused of. Paul's crazy. He's always in this deep, spiritual, emotional kind of conversations. He's crazy, and he's saying, I'm not crazy. The love of Christ compels me to see your needs this way. He goes on in verse 20 of the same chapter to say, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. Pleading what? Pleading that you be saved. I have the love of Jesus in my heart, which compels me to see your deepest need, that Jesus Christ died and rose again and that you need to live for Him. Now, we are ambassadors for Christ as though <laughs> when I speak to you this way, he's saying, I'm not crazy, but when I speak to you this way, it's as though God were pleading through us. And if you've ever sat there on Sunday morning or with a friend or someone who loves you enough to take the time and who is all emotionally worked up or all revved up, whether it's emotional or not, to share with you pleadingly, look, you got to stop this, or look, you need to do this, or you need to be saved, or this is serious, and you're sitting there wondering, look, this is a Tuesday afternoon at 6 p.m. in my living room, and you've come to my house pretending that this is urgent? I'll think about this. Can we talk about this later? You're like, why are you so worked up about this? I've known you for X amount of years, or, or you've never spoken to me before. Why do you suddenly care so much about me? That's why people are looking at Paul saying, what is wrong with this guy? He's all worked up. He looks crazy. He's talking like a crazy person. Heaven and hell and sin, and it's just, it's never far from the point. I just want to talk about the game this afternoon, or how your kid's doing, or whatever it is. But he's saying, I'm not crazy. When you hear me pleading, it's as an ambassador, a representative, a representative of Christ Jesus, as though God were pleading through us. And then he says, again, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me just pause for a moment and implore you to be reconciled with God. We should be thankful that God is working in the hearts of people in our church. I don't know how many people we have baptized this year, but it's not been a small number. Not for us. We should be grateful for what God is doing. We should be aware of those around us who have not come to faith in Jesus. We should look every once in a while like crazy people, pleading with them to be reconciled to God. 
You're not crazy. You just know Jesus. That's not crazy. That's sanity. All around this room are faces you may not know and people you don't recognize. Does the love of Christ compel you to plead with them? To reason with them? When you go to work tomorrow, does the love of Christ compel you? When you sit down, when you eat, when you watch a sports game with a bunch of people whose kids are playing with your kids, does the love of Christ compel you when you coach, when you teach, when you serve? Paul looked like a crazy person. You might look crazy too. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. If you are not a Christian this morning, it is not crazy of me to plead with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to live for Him. You should, at the conclusion of the service, come right up to me down here or to another person in the room around you and you should say, I want to trust Jesus with my life. That's not crazy. That's not crazy. Today is the day of salvation. Now we move into the following verses, just 12 and 13. Three short points, not a long, drawn-out message on them. The first point is obedience. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed, I believe this connects back to verse 8 and the obedience that's referenced there. Remember in the middle of verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed, so should you. And he tells the Philippians, you've always obeyed when I've written you, when I've, when I've spoken to you, you've always, you've always obeyed. Christianity is more than rule keeping. Christianity is more than just obeying laws and, you know, structures. It's not legalism for Paul to say, hey, as you've always obeyed, now continue to obey in this. It's not, it's not legalism. It's not salvation by obeying. It's not salvation by rule keeping. And yet love for Christ obeys him. This is Jesus in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Same chapter, verse 21, from Jesus. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Christianity is not about rule-keeping, but those who love Jesus will seek to obey him. And Paul is pleading with them, you've always sought to be obedient, Philippians. I would say the same of you, of this church here. You've always sought to be obedient. And he's going to call them to something else here. As you've always been obedient, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean? It's the second point. What does it mean to work out your salvation? I'm going to offer two corrections in this verse. This is the first one. This does not mean 
figure out your salvation. When we use the language work out, sometimes we mean, hey, I've got a hard problem and I need to figure it out. I need to work it out. Sometimes uh, I'll tell someone at work, look, I don't have the answer here, but you need to work this one out. You need to work this one through. You need to figure out the answer. In this context, this does not mean figure out your salvation. It means live out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Perform your salvation. Not that you are saved by your works, but if you are saved, you will live in accordance with that faith. If you are a Christian, you will live out that faith. James in chapter 2 has a very long section about this, verses 14 through 26 in the book of James, about the danger of empty belief. He says in verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And he's dealing with the idea of empty faith. Now we know faith alone saves but saving faith is followed by works. That's why we talk about committing your life to Jesus, serving Jesus. Jesus looked at his own people and said, count the cost. He warns us, any man who would come after me must be willing to take up his cross and follow me. Count the cost. We are saved by faith. When you look at Jesus Christ and you say, I believe, Saving faith justifies before God immediately and eternally. But saving faith also shows up in the life of the believer in the way that they live following that transformation. Oh, all of your sin doesn't go away following salvation. But repentance is present and a willingness to obey and serve the Lord Jesus marks the life of a Christian. Work out your salvation. And then the third part, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The second correction, this does not mean be afraid that you might not be saved. That's not what it means. I've heard it taught that way. Hey, I, I really, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Well, you know, the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What that advice means is, hey, go figure out whether or not you're, survey, you're, you know, you're saved and, and be afraid. And, and you, know, you know, you should be afraid if you're not sure. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not what this means. If you are saved, you don't need to go question your salvation a thousand times. You shouldn't be terrified that, Oh, God's going to rip it away from me. Or, oh, I've sinned and I failed and I've ruined my, my you know. I, no, no, no. This is the same Paul who in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 says this, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul does not have a problem with eternal security. He's not saying, hey, look, when you sin, you should, you know, really be terrified and alarmed that maybe you're not a Christian. When a Christian sins, a Christian should repent in faith, trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's the same faith that has a person saved in the first place. Now, this means when it says, 
with fear and trembling. The clarifying statement is in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. I don't know if I'll put this into words the right way. But he's saying, live out your salvation. Work out your salvation. And do it with a sense of awe and trembling and reverence. That it is truly God who is working in your life for his purposes. It may be you going to the store and buying groceries for a widow. But you don't do that casually. You do that with a sense of all that it is God who is working through you. It may be you that knocks on a door to talk to somebody about what's going on in their life, but you don't just treat it, well, yeah, I'll just stop by, just be flipping about. No, 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 no. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Um, There is something um, awe-inspiring about being invited to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ on this earth. A Christian person on this earth. To represent the creator God on this earth. That's not something that you take lightly. You know, if my neighbor asked me to go do something on his behalf, I might take that lightly, you know. Hey, you know, Bill wanted me to stop by and have this conversation with you, so I'm <laughs> here I am. I'm having a conversation. Hey, look, don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what Bill said. I might take that pretty casually. When I go and I talk with someone about the deepest needs of their life, or when I go and I try to perform a Christian work to meet a need as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I'm not just doing something for Bill. I'm being the hands and feet of the Almighty God. It may not feel super spiritual, which is why we need the reminder from Paul here that it is. I wonder if we need a reminder of the seriousness of calling oneself a Christian. It is no small thing to raise your hand and to say, I represent Jesus Christ. That is no small thing. And I think the instruction is, if you're going to do that this morning, You can't say, I represent Jesus Christ and shun unity in the body of Christ because of bitterness, anger, offenses, difficulties. You can't do that. And you can't say, I represent Jesus Christ, but I don't need to obey him. I can just take liberty wherever I see fit because after all, you know, we're all living under grace now, so... I'll just use the grace of God as a license to sin when I feel like it's appropriate. You can't say, I represent Jesus Christ and do that. And you can't say, I represent Jesus Christ and then live your life so casually as if you don't. To say, I am a Christian is to say, I'm an ambassador 
of God on this earth, saved by Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. We should be reminded that it's a big deal. And if you're not a representative of Jesus Christ, I would remind you that the alternative is not enviable. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. Not in the sense that you're offering some occult-like sacrifice in the back room of your house. No. But you share in his sin and in his rebellion and in his condemnation. And you'll share in his judgment. We are called out of that as Christians. And I would call you out of that. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Serve him faithfully. Maybe I'll end with this. Jesus, the word of God, is trustworthy with your life and with your happiness. Um, I posted something on Facebook this morning as I was preparing for the sermon and for Sunday school and thinking through the reading for the call to worship because I, I listen to sermons on Sundays before I come here. I play them. I, I try to make sure I'm fed the word of God, not on a similar text or a same text, but I don't want to just show up and and preach. And I was listening to Legan Duncan. And so I posted a quote from a sermon from Legan Duncan. And it was something to the effect of, um, we know that we believe the Bible based on how we respond when the Bible tells us to do very hard things that we don't want to do. In my experience, when people struggle to do what the Bible tells them to do, it's really a struggle of faith and can I trust God that I will be happy or that this will work out if I give up when I'm being told to give up or if I go do what I'm being told to do. In other words, it's a wrestling of I'm not convinced that this is really in my best interests. And that's why I say God is trustworthy with your happiness and with your peace. You can trust Him. You can trust Him that He will not lead you into a state of eternal misery and suffering. You can trust a Father who loves you, who seeks to be your Father, who will not forsake you. He is trustworthy with your life. And you're going to meet a lot of people in life, many, many of us have already, who are not trustworthy to that degree who will turn their back and who will betray. That is not our God. He is to be trusted. Let's pray together. Father, I am emotionally moved when I spend time in your word like I do on Sundays I'm drawn over and over again to the sacrifices that you have made in order to know me and to be my father. And I want to praise you publicly for the way you have patiently endured all of my sin. I want to thank you for the security 
the legal forgiveness purchased by the blood of your son Jesus that keeps me from being cast out of your presence when I do evil. I want to thank you for the love of Christ that you have placed in my heart and the heart of your people. And as a shepherd with a pastoral mindset, Father, I pray that your spirit will work so that the love of Christ compels us to live together as we should. It is not in the human heart to put up with sin and betrayal. But it is in your heart to do so. Father, thank you for your love and for your patience with us as we fail. Help us not to be prideful people. But to look at the interests of others as greater than our own. Take these tithes and offerings. Use them for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.